0: All right, we will be reading through Psalm 109 today. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him, let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tired, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few, may another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking far food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off, may his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy, and the brokenhearted, and put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing far to be from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O oh God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your namesake, because your steadfast love is good deliver me For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become not and no fat. I I am subject to scorn of my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done this. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in like a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one, to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. I saw that on a bumper sticker uh, on the back of a car the other day. It seems like no matter where I look, somebody there is angry. Just headlines from this morning. Three dead, dozens injured at violent white nationalist rally. Uh, Guam, Japan, prepare for possible North Korea missile launch. Uproar over Trump aid at black journalist convention. It's a massacre. At least 30 children die in Indian hospital after oxygen is cut off. Wrath of right falls on Google. So much anger. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. So I've heard, last year I went through and deleted all of my social media accounts. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everything gone. It was all full of... Anger, it seemed, actually it wasn't all that full of anger because I had thumbs down and blocked so many people that all that was left was news sites anyway. I said I could get my news somewhere else. So I just deleted them. There there was so much vitriol coming through and coming across the internet. Anger over this injustice or that one. Anger at this politician or that one. This tragedy or that issue that I just uh, deleted it all. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Well, anger is kind of a tough issue to deal with. It's a hard emotion to process. It's volatile. It's personal. Most of us wouldn't admit we're angry just that we have issues when we know what's right and other people don't. And I'm more than happy to kind of put on the face of being angry about those things that are socially acceptable to be angry at, you know, angry about this or angry about that, the ones that everybody sort of collectively is angry about. But in honesty, when I look inside, you know, it's... It's usually not the big injustices that make me angry. It's the small ones pointed at me. But what about you? Let's not make this all about me. What about you? What makes you angry? If you jotted down every time you were angry over the last week and looked at what caused you to be angry, what would the general characteristic of that look like? Are you angry at Poverty and starvation and great injustices around the world or is it more like that guy? Who cut you off in traffic or the stupid microwave at work that can't heat anything up quickly enough or Stuff like that I'm just gonna stop before I put myself under conviction (laughs) Anger is a hard topic and because it's such a hard topic I brought a friend to help me deal with this to just lighten the mood a little bit. This is anger And and anger has a lot of things to say. I don't know if you'll be able to hear this or not, but great. This is just great. Great. You know, this is just great. He's like, all right, that's it, Pops. I'm coming for you. We're just going to put him right here. And if it starts to feel hot in here, like we're under conviction, I'm just going to reach over and squeeze his hand, and then we can all laugh and sort of relieve the tension a little bit. You guys all know what movie this guy is from? Yeah, Inside Out, exactly. It was a great movie. The uh, central pr- premise is that there's this young girl, she's going through a stressful life change, and we get to come along that journey with her through the, the eyes of the five emotions that live inside of her head, inside of headquarters. And in her head, uh, Joy, not anger, Joy is in charge. Joy runs the control panel. Joy is the one that decides most of the time what they're going to do. But in the course of the movie, as it jumps into different people's heads and you get a clue what's going on, just briefly, the movie doesn't really make a point of it or try to draw a lesson or anything, but just briefly you'll notice inside the dad's head, anger's in charge. Anger sits front and center and calls the shots. And like I said, the movie doesn't really draw a lesson from that, but it got me wondering what emotion... It, what what main emotion is in charge in my life or in yours if one emotion were at the control center most of the time calling the shots in your life what emotion would that be would it be joy or fear or sadness or maybe anger Now we've talked through some of these emotions and others in this summer series through the psalms called Songs of Rescue as we've looked at different psalms and different emotions and learned together from the psalm how to appropriately express and evaluate and process these emotions we have before God. How do we live before God in such a way that we have an emotionally healthy spirituality, an emotionally healthy life? And the Psalms have given us a model and a guide for expressing our emotions in these healthy ways before God. Our goal this series has been mainly to, to give you the words you need to express the emotions we all go through, words from the Psalms, so that we can learn how to express them but express them back to God. So to round off the sermon series, to finish uh, finish it all up, tie it up in a neat bow, we're going to look at Psalm 109, Psalm 109, to learn about anger. How should we process our anger? Is there a healthy way to express and evaluate anger? We'll turn to Psalm 109, and we're going to explore it and see if we can find some answers to those questions. If you've grabbed one of those Bibles under the seat in front of you, it is on page 601. And as you turn there to Psalm 109, let me just give you a little bit of context on the psalm, Uh, tradition tells us that it's one of David's psalms, one of the songs that David wrote, Uh, though we can't necessarily tie this song to any one particular incident in his life, uh, it's just not, there's not enough specifics for us to do that. Uh, But it's in the category of a lament psalm, a song in which David expresses his frustration and his anger at injustice. But it's also in the category of psalms we call imprecatory psalms, which I know is not a word that we use all that often. So just think of this as one of those psalms in which somebody wants bad things to happen to someone else who made bad things happen to them. I know this is a little longer than imprecatory, but that's basically what it means. So as we go through Psalm 109, as we learn how to process our anger before God, we're going to focus on three, three movements or three processes we have to go through when anger comes up. With David, we're gonna do our best to feel the weight of injustice. Feel the weight of injustice so that we can appropriately express our desire for justice. And finally, evaluate our anger, evaluate our emotional response to that injustice. So we're gonna feel the weight of injustice, move into expressing our desire for justice to take place, And then evaluate our anger, evaluate our emotional response to that injustice. You ready? Let's jump in. We're going to start with feeling the weight of injustice. And and I choose the word feeling very carefully and intentionally. Uh, Derek Kidner uh, was a late British Old Testament scholar, and he wrote on these type of psalms uh, saying that these psalms have, among other roles in Scripture, one which is peculiarly their own, to touch and kindle us rather than simply to address us. The passages on which we may be tempted to sit in judgment have the shocking immediacy of a scream to startle us into feeling something, feeling something of the desperation which produced them. These kind of psalms are intended to shock us, to kindle us like a match thrown on kindling. It's designed to erupts some feeling in us as we read through these psalms. See, Psalm 109 is not a clinical examination of injustice. It's not a record of wrongs committed against someone. On the contrary, it's an outpouring of emotion. It's like a a literary exclamation point. It has the, or it should have, the effect of a shock of a scream, of a shout, kind of jolting us into, a, in, into attention. We're supposed to feel along with the psalm writer, get inside his head, get inside his emotions, feel his emotions, feel the weight of the injustice he's experienced. And though David doesn't give us details about what has happened, uh, he does describe in generalities his experience. And his primary complaint is encapsulated in verses 4 and 5. Take a look. Psalm 109 verse 4, in return for my love they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer, so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. I know many of you know exactly what David's talking about. You've been in a relationship that has spiraled out of control. You've been in a, in a business partnership that has dissolved. You've been in a friendship that has disintegrated. You've been in these situations in which you felt like no matter what you did, no matter what you said, no matter what you gave, it was all paid back with accusation. It was all paid back with wrongdoing. They rewarded me evil for good you know perhaps if it's far enough in the past for you you're able to look back on that with the perspective of time and evaluate a little bit of your own contribution to the breakdown of that relationship whatever it was uh, but in the moment when it's fresh when it's happening i think we would all echo david's words i'm just i'm trying to do the right thing and they just keep accusing me they i'm trying to do good and i keep being rewarded with evil Look, I'm trying to be nice, and they just hate me. I don't know why. This is what David's saying. And whatever whatever happened to him, we don't know what it was, but whatever happened to him, it was in a relationship characterized by a close friendship love, someone who was close enough that his actions felt like a betrayal, like a personal offense. Like he thought you knew the person until they went and did that thing, whatever it was. In multiple times in this psalm, the word kindness shows up, which is in other places translated loyal love, steadfast love, covenant-keeping love. It's the love of a close personal relationship, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is the kind of relationship David had with this person who is now accusing him unfairly and unjustly. It's a, it's a personal betrayal, a betrayal that's caused a significant amount of distress and psychological anguish. If you slide down to verses 22 through 25, he says, I'm, I'm poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I'm gone like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken, shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they will wag their heads. David is describing his emotional state in physical terms, weakness, starvation. He says he's like a shadow at the very end of day about to be swallowed up by darkness as the sun sets. He says he feels like he's of so little consequence to these people's lives now that he's like a like a fly or a pest landing on their shoulder just like brush it off with a shrug, he's gone. He's so beaten down and discouraged. When his accusers see him, they just shake their heads. What happened to this guy? And David's perspective here is certainly one-sided. Obviously, any outpouring of emotion is one-sided, but it's still true. It's true to his experience. He's suffering from an injustice. If he's representing it faithfully, then it's true. It's not right for love to be repaid with hate. It's not right for good to be repaid with evil. It's not right for covenant-keeping love to be repaid with a betrayal. And I would venture to guess that most of us in the room have experienced something like this. You've been in a friendship where the other person... Uh, Refuses to talk to you about whatever's going on with them. Instead, they talk to everyone else. You thought things were fine, and then you find out, no, they're not. And by the time you find out what they're angry about, you thought it had already been addressed. Or maybe it's a total misunderstanding, but it doesn't matter. Everybody's entrenched into anger, and the relationship just dissolves. Uh, You can read these words and think, you know, David, I don't know what you were going through, but I know what that feels like. I've been there myself. And that's the point of, well, the first point of reading this psalm is to feel along with David, along with the psalmist, feel the weight of the injustice he's experiencing, feel the weight of that emotion. And as we feel the weight of that injustice, it should kindle within us a little bit of anger when things don't go right we should feel a little bit of anger. Now, let me define that just a, a little bit, talk about what anger is. When, when this guy is introduced in the movie, um, he says a lot of things like, that's one of my, I can really, I can really connect with that one. Uh, when he's introduced in the movie, uh, we're told he cares very deeply about things being fair, right? Even from a baby stage when he first shows up, and he's like, no dessert." I'll show you no dessert. You know, he, he very much cares about everything being fair. And anger, it's important to understand this because this is against what some various philosophies and others have taught. Anger is a natural, normal passion. It's a human emotion. Everybody experiences anger because anger is the reaction we have when something we love is being threatened. Whether it's us, someone we care deeply about, something, a country, whatever. When something we love is being threatened, we respond in anger. Anger is the fight side of the fight or flight response. Anger is the power, the, the, the kind of kick in the pants some of us need sometimes to get out there and do something. Make a change. Just do something to fix whatever went wrong. Defend the thing we love against whatever's threatening it. So anger is the normal and I would argue the right response to actually feeling the weight of injustice. Now we can hear about injustice, we can hear about things that are wrong with other people without feeling the weight of it and sometimes that's healthy. If I got angry about everything I saw just on the news this morning, I, you know, there'd be nothing left of me. So we can't be angry about everything, but the things we do allow in, the things we feel the weight of the injustice of, that should push us in an appropriate anger to want to do something to make a difference. And when we feel that anger, it's natural for us to, in one way or another, express it. I don't know if you've, I mean, very rarely do you hear of silent angry people you only find out about it after they've blown up right we don't want to do it that way so we need to learn how to express it well express it appropriately and proper expressions of anger are not just blow up set your hair on fire turn red um, just like wrath fests they're supposed to be an, an expression of a desire for justice of whatever's wrong to be set right which is what david does in psalm 109 He expresses a desire for justice. Now, obviously, that expression can take more or less healthy forms, uh, especially if our idea of justice or of what is actually right is out of whack, and we're going to talk about that a little more later. And as we read through Psalm 109 earlier, you might have been struck by what sounded like just sheer vindictiveness or or whining almost coming through in this psalm. Look at verse 6 david saying here 's what I want to have happen to the guy who's accusing me, this guy who's betrayed me, appoint a wicked man against him. let an accuser stand at his right hand. In other words, so in the court system at the time, um, the uh, the defendant you know standing here, and the person who's accusing them would stand literally at his right hand here 's all the things you've done wrong and he's saying What's happening to me isn't fair. I want something, I want that to happen to him. I want an accuser to stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. In other words, when he asks for mercy, have the judge double the sentence. And then this is where it gets really rough. Verse 8 May his days be few. May another take his office or his job. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. And David goes on and on. And it sounds a little extreme, right? You're like, I don't know what he did to you, David, but if that's what he deserves, it was bad. And actually, that's one thing we could say about it. The the measure of David's words or the force of his words are a measure of the offense against him by and large. But there are a few things I do want to say about just the the vindictiveness of this language. First, remember, uh, this kind of invective, this kind of imprecation has A language style a rhetoric all of its own Uh, what's going on is when you're trying to communicate how intensely angry you feel you're gonna pile on things that you don't mean literally but which illustrate how intense your emotion is it's like Robin Hood you know when um, oh I forget the character's name when he's like Loxley I'll carve out your heart with a spoon it's like are you really gonna carve out his heart with a spoon no Not literally, but you're piling on the invective here to to illustrate how how angry you are. Another version of this might be something like, um, you know, you mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns. You've never heard that one? (laughs) I heard that all the time. Um, It didn't mean that my dad literally had horns, though I suspected at times, but uh, it did mean don't don't mess with dad, right? Or like you're playing basketball and you're looking at the guy uh, across the whatever from you and you're like, I'm gonna crush you. And it doesn't literally mean you're gonna reduce them into a pile that, you know, the same mass that they used to be, but not the same shape. It just means, you're, you know, you're gonna win and they're gonna be humiliated. See, so we, we kind of hype it up uh, in a hyperbolic sense to, uh, to make a point. We do the same thing when we praise things. Oh, this, you gotta try this ice cream, it'll blow your socks off. Does anyone actually say that anymore? No? Just me? That's fine. (laughs) Obviously, eating ice cream has nothing to do with the location of my socks or the force with which they leave my feet. That's not the point. It's not literal. The point is, if you just said in a very literal way, this ice cream is delicious, you should try some so you can enjoy its delicious taste too, doesn't feel the same, right? It does not convey the emotional experience I'm having as I eat this ice cream that I want to share with you because I'm such a loving guy like that. So we should not read what David writes here as his literal wish for what would happen to the person. We should read it as, as a measure of the depth of anguish he's going through. And the reason he's going through that much anguish It's because a second comment to make about this particular part of the passage is that evil is real. Most of us don't have an experience of the kind of injustice that David is experiencing. Evil is real, injustice is real. For most of us, our lives are more like kids on a playground who get into an argument and are told to hug and make up. That's not what's happening to David. This is intense injustice, real wrongs, and things must be set right. And this kind of injustice requires a response of anger. If there's no anger, there's no love. But I'll get to that more in a minute. Last century, there was a a Catholic psychiatrist working and living in New York City named Conrad Bars, Um, who's actually from uh, the Netherlands originally, but fought in the French Resistance during World War II, was captured and sent to a concentration camp. Uh, After he was released, he became a psychiatrist, Christian psychiatrist. And so when when he writes about evil, he writes about it from the perspective of personal experience. He says there's a big difference between the person who knows solely that something is evil and ought to be opposed... And the one who, in addition, also feels hate for that evil is angry that it is corrupting and harming his fellow men and feels aroused to combat it courageously and vigorously. Anger is the appropriate response to injustice when it fuels us to combat the injustice. Not the person, but the injustice. C.S. Lewis, in his Reflections on the Psalms, talking about, Imprecatory Psalms says, if the, if the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, this was, I think, at least in part because they took in right and wrong more seriously. David lives with, an, with a more acute sense of right and wrong than most of us do. He takes it more seriously. He lived in a time in, in which it was a world of savage punishments, of massacre and, and violence, of blood sacrifice in all countries, of in human sacrifice in many of them. He lived in a world in which right and wrong was taken very, very seriously and extremely. But even so, don't judge his words too harshly. When we hope that someone gets what's coming to them, or we say we're going to sue them for all they're worth, or we want to give them their due, what are we actually wishing for? If you look deep inside while thinking about the person who has hurt you the most in this life, some of us may feel like David's words don't go far enough. After all, when we tell someone to go to hell, we're saying worse than what David did. So don't be too quick to sit in judgment on a passage like this, which is a raw outpouring of emotion. We are fully capable of feeling the way David felt even though we might be just a little more polite in the way we express it. So as we feel the weight of injustice and learn to express that desire for justice, we also need to evaluate it. We need to evaluate our anger and evaluate the justice that we're seeking. Uh, What's happening in these verses when, when David says, that, that he wants justice to come on this person. Uh, his sense of justice is basically, it, it's based on the principle of reciprocity. You know this principle? You're f- probably familiar with the golden rule side of it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So basically it's whatever you give, that's what you want to come back to. you. The other side, the inverse of the golden rule uh, from Matthew 7 is with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This comes through very clearly in Psalm 109, this principle of reciprocity. If you look at verse 16, David says about his accuser, for he did not remember to show kindness, covenant love. Verse 12, let there be none to extend kindness to him. Verse 17 is even more clear. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. And David goes on to describe this guy as like a person who's put on a coat made of cursing. And he says, let that coat stick to him. Let it soak into him. Make it so that he cannot even take it off. And it reminded me of uh, of a section in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Uh, which is a fabulous book if you've never read it. He calls it a dream or a fantasy of of what might happen if a a busload of people from hell were allowed to visit heaven. And in the story, all those who came from hell for a holiday, for a vacation in heaven, they're each greeted by a friend or a loved one in heaven who who was their their friend or loved one on earth, and and they're each trying to convince the person, stay, stay in heaven. And each one of them says... Yeah, I, I want heaven, but I want heaven on my terms. And each one has different terms. Ultimately, each person chooses to be in hell where they can be free instead of in heaven where they have to submit to God. And so in the in the course of all these different uh, people that the narrator is seeing, one of them is this uh, this old lady who's just a string of complaints. Complaint, 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 complaint. And the narrator looking at this person says... She doesn't seem to be the sort of soul that ought to be in even danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's just a silly, garrulous old woman who got into a habit of grumbling. And his teacher, the guy who's interpreting all of these uh, experiences for him, says, well, that's what she once was. Maybe that's what she still is. If so, she'll certainly be cured. But the whole question is whether she is, in fact, a grumbler or only a grumble. And the narrator asks, well, how can you have a grumble without a grumbler? And he says, well, it begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, uh, perhaps criticizing it. Uh, But you yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, may embrace it. And you can repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. There will be no you left to criticize the mood, not even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. In another place, Lewis writes about the same principle. He says it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will itself be hell, unless it's nipped in the bud. In a sense, what David is doing in Psalm 109 is he's telling God, hey, this is the life this guy has chosen. Just fast forward it. Fast forward it to the end where everything he's paid out comes back to him. All of the curses he's delivered become what he is. One commentator calls this the terrible logic of judgment, whereby what a man chooses, he ultimately and totally receives and indeed absorbs and is absorbed into. He says this is expressed nowhere else with quite this vivid intensity. And David says, this is the judgment I want, and he just, he hands it over to God. Verses 26 and 27, he says, help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. So he's not taking the responsibility himself to see God's justice done, but he's leaving it to God. He's saying just, what all I'm asking is that you give this guy over to himself. Let him continue on as he is. It will be judgment for him. Now that's feeling the weight of the injustice and declaring our desire, expressing our desire for justice. Now how do we evaluate the emotions that come along with with it? How do we evaluate the anger? Well, if we're gonna process our anger well, we have to evaluate it, right? Because anger so often goes wrong. If you remember, anger is always a reaction to a threat, that natural reaction we have when something we love is threatened. Anger and love go hand in hand. One commentator said that anger is love in motion, moving to confront the thing that attacks its beloved. So the first and the most important question, if you really only ask yourself one question, this is the one, what do I love? In other words, what makes me angry? What makes me angry the easiest? What brings up anger so fast in me? What is it that makes anger well to the surface? Well, identify that thing, and then what's What's the threat? What's being attacked? Whatever that thing is, that's the thing we love most. And of course, most of us are going to see that that's self-centered, right? But it's not always self-centered. I mean, if you take my stuffed animal away, I'll be annoyed. Oh, I'll show you attitude, old man. Yeah, I'll show you attitude, old man. I'll be annoyed if you take that away, but attack my daughter, and it's a whole different ballgame. Because the greater the love, the greater the capacity for anger. The greater the love, the greater the response of a threat to that love. So you can see how anger can get out of order. Anger can go wrong if we love the wrong things in the wrong amount. If we love ourselves most, if we defend ourselves most, if our view of of a just world is one in which I always get what I want, no one gets in my way, I take what I want, and I take it when I want it, you can see how anger would get a little out of whack and be misdirected. If, on the other hand, what we love more is other people and God supremely, then anger at offenses to ourselves diminishes, while anger at offenses to others and to God increases. So am I angry at the right things? Whatever makes me most angry is the thing I love the most. Now, you can try to control your anger in different ways. Uh, You might have been brought up in a society where um, it's not okay to express anger. You know, you're Minnesota nice. And so you've got it under control. It's deep down inside and no one sees it, right? Or you could go another route. You could use pride and say, you know what? That person doesn't deserve my anger. I'm so much better than them. I'm not even going to let them make me angry, which starves the anger but fuels the pride so all in all it's like you know being cured of chickenpox by being given cancer so not a good thing now it would be good if we could if more people did control their anger even if they use those not as great ways to do it uh, but ultimately those approaches and any other approach you can think of doesn't resolve anger in a meaningful way only the gospel can do that if you think about it so much of our anger comes from wanting to be God ourselves, as if it were our job to secure ultimate justice in the world, as if we were God and it was our right to make everything go right. But the gospel tells us that God has already secured ultimate justice. There will come a judgment when all wrongs are put right. And what that does is it takes the responsibility to fix everything out of my hands and puts it back in God's hands. I don't have to panic. I don't have to be anxious about things being made right. I can live under and with injustice because it's not up to me, which is incredibly freeing and somewhat, I'm not sure ironically is the right word for it, but when you're free from being angry or when you're free to live under injustice, you can actually combat it better. You can fight it better because you can fight the injustice itself instead of identifying the injustice with the people committing it and fighting the people. I hope that makes sense. My, my goal someday when I'm, when I'm old and uh, not, can't, you know, wouldn't win if I got in any fights anyway, my, my goal is to at some point get to the point where in my sanctification I am no longer getting angry at offenses done to me. Not because I can just deal with it, but because I'm not thinking about myself that much. And yes, I know that it is ironic to publicly declare how humble I hope I'm gonna be in the future, but uh, I would like to shift my anger off of me and onto offenses against others. And the more I look at what Jesus has done for me, the uh, the more it takes the focus off of myself. And puts it back on God, and, and I can get angry at the things he got angry at, which, you know what, includes the evil inside of me. See, David prayed in a sense, God, give him over to himself. Give him over to himself. Just fast forward. Everything he's doing now, fast forward to its natural conclusion. And, you know, we live, we live on the other side of the cross, just because these words are here in scripture doesn't mean that should be, this should be our attitude. And if Psalm 109 is like your life psalm, you may have anger issues. Uh, I don't want to hear about them. I won't, I won't know how to deal with them. I'll, just, I'll be afraid of you if this is your life passage. But I, I don't even remember what I was saying. What was I saying? Something about anger, moving anger off of me. I don't know. Um, I think I was talking about the gospel, Right? here's the point. God is going to take care of injustice. Every wrong will be made right, including the wrongs that I myself commit. And though these words are here in Scripture, that doesn't mean we make them our model for how we pray about those who have offended us or wronged us. David may have prayed, God, give them over, because for the Old Testament saints, uh, a future writing of wrongs was way off in the distance. It was fuzzy. It was like taking your glasses off and trying to describe the landscape. When all you can see is what's right here, then you need justice now for justice to be realized. But we live on the other side of the cross. Justice has come. We no longer pray, God, give them over. Now we pray, God, save them from themselves. In the same way you saved me from myself, save them from their selves. If I can figure out how to take the gospel and, and that truth and continually speak it to my angry heart, maybe someday, maybe, maybe someday, I won't be angry at the people who hurt me. I'll be angry at how they're hurting themselves. And pray that God will save them from themselves, just like He saved me. Father, you have overwhelmed us with your love. We did not we did not deserve your love, we did not deserve your grace, we deserved your just and justified anger at our sin. but you and the ultimate surgical strike. You attacked the sin without attacking the sinner. When Christ died for us to forgive us of the evil inside, you made it possible for the sin to be abolished and the sinner renewed. Lord, give us a heart of justice that wants to see right done, not revenge. And give us a healthy and appropriate anger. An anger that fuels your purposes in your kingdom, not our own kingdoms, not our own purposes. Give us anger like fuel in a car to move us forward, not like, not like a fuse on a bomb. Give us the wisdom to hate the things you hate, but love the people you love. Move in love. Let our anger bring about justice. In Jesus' name.